This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're going to be talking about mass torts and one mass tort in particular, and that is the now 300,000 claims that are out there that have been filed against 3M relating to a defective earplug that they sold to the United States uh, to the tune of millions of defective earplugs that were worn by soldiers who went off to war, who were exposed to the loud sounds of war with an earplug that didn't work properly. And many of them had their hearing damaged as a result. And this is a very interesting story. It starts with a second year associate at Quinn Emanuel by the name of Matt Hosen. Matt is with us here today. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, John. We also have the privilege of having with us one of the leaders of the plaintiff's mass tort bar, who's leading the leadership team now in these, in these cases. There's an MD multi-district litigation proceeding, which is pending in Pensacola, Florida. And the leader of the team there is Brian Allstock, who's with the firm of Allstock, Witkin, Priest, and Overholtz. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Good to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. So as I said, this all starts with a second-year associate at Quinn Emanuel. Uh, Matt, were you working in LA at the time, or where were you working? Yep, I was in the downtown LA office. And you weren't working on a tort case. You were you were working, uh, as I understand, on an antitrust case or a patent case. Tell us what it was that you were working on. We represented Moldex Metric, um, who's also in the earplug market, and they were asserting antitrust sham litigation claims against 3M, and those related to a frivolous patent infringement lawsuit that 3M had brought against Moldex uh, in 2012. All right, so this case is pending, and you're one of the associates, maybe the only associate, I don't know, who was working on the case with one of our partners, uh, Hal Barza. Yep, that's correct. It was just it was just Hal and I for that case, and then um, in expert discovery, Joe Ponovich uh, joined the team. But during the course of document discovery in that case, you came across a very interesting document. Tell us about that. Well, the document it looked like it had come out of a fox. It looked like a hard copy document. But at a certain point, I did I did kind of stumble upon it, and it had a long title, uh, but we call it the Flange Report. And, and what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a short, you know, five-page report, and it's basically the observations and conclusions that a scientist and his technician at 3M uh, made about this combat arms version two earplug during the course of them testing the earplug. Um, so it's a really, it's kind of like a firsthand view of, of what they saw and observed during their testing of the plug. And as they describe in the report, they basically discovered that it was not providing the proper amount of protection that they were telling the military it would provide. So it was an important document for us. When I found it, I, I brought it over to Hal and he looked at it. And I, I remember one time, like maybe the day after I gave it to him, we were walking past each other in the hallway and he looked at me and he's like, Matt. What is this report? Like, wow. And then he just kept like he didn't have time to like stop and talk. He's like, what is this report? Uh, and then and then we used it later on at some depositions. The document itself didn't really have anything to do with the underlying patent case, did it? Or for that matter, uh, with the follow on antitrust case you brought, did it really? Right. That's that's correct. Um, and the reason we were able to get them to produce that document 
is that um, we had brought a California unfair competition claim against 3M because we were alleging that they had mislabeled the NRRs that they were putting on the uh, on the combat arms. And the and NRRs, so we, we should tell the listeners what NRR is. It's, a, it's the noise reduction rating. It has to be labeled on every hearing protection device sold in the U.S. All right, so they're misrepresenting the, the ability of this earplug to filter out noise. So that, that clearly was relevant to the California unfair competition claim, I guess. Yes, that's correct. And we actually had to bring a motion to compel to get them to, uh, to give us documents about the testing of the combat arms too. So after, you know, it took months and months to get there. And then after we, um, after we succeeded on that motion, they, they basically dumped a bunch of documents on us. And, and it was in that group that the flange report uh, was found. And give us some idea about how many documents in the haystack that you had to review before you found this document. I would say in the many tens of thousands, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, one of these million document cases, but, but there were, there were many, many, probably maybe a million pages of documents, but documents themselves, I'd say in the upper tens of thousands. And, and when you saw it, uh, obviously you read it, was it immediately apparent to you how important this document was? No, no, I read it. But I was reading it, you know, I'm trying to get through a bunch of documents. <laughs> and so I can't spend too much time on a single document. But I read it and it looked like something that I'd never seen before. And it jumped out at me because of that. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. I'm going to print this out and kind of put it to the side and I'll go back to it later. Um, it was basically like that. And, and you obviously did. And at some point you took it to the partner you were working with, Hal Barza, and, yes. and tell us what happened then. Well, I, I, it was, I mean, I included it in a binder of documents for him that I dropped off at his desk probably before I went home. And so I didn't really hear back, like, aside from the uh, passing each other in the hall, we probably didn't have like a discussion about it for a few days because I'm sure he was, he was working his way through like a 50 document binder. So. Right, but at, at some point, it, it becomes apparent this is a, a potentially a really important document. And what happens? Yeah, so we had uh, fact discovery, we had uh, fact depositions, and um, we had three back-to-back -back depositions of their lab personnel, of 3M's lab personnel. And in particular, we were going to be deposing Jeff Hamer, who was the director of the R&D lab, and then we had uh, Elliot Berger, who was the lab manager and basically oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of the lab. And then we had Ron Keeper, who was the technician who kind of did all the, the actual performing of the tests and the, the fitting of the earplugs. And so we had these back on back-to-back -back days. So Hal made the strategic decision to use the flange report with Jeff Hamer before Elliot Berger uh, saw it and knew that we had it. And, and, and Elliot Berger was one of the authors, if, if not the author of the Flange Report. Right. It was Elliot Berger and Ron Keeper who authored the Flange Report. And, and what happened in the deposition when Mr. Hamer was presented with this document? So we actually, you know, this was a videotape deposition and, and we love 
playing this um, deposition video at trial. We played every trial. And because it's very clear from the video that Jeff Hamer had never seen this report and is kind of flabbergasted when he's confronted with it because Hal kind of set him up to be like, you wouldn't do this in your lab, right? Like if you discovered that an earplug was, you know, very providing variable protection, like that would be bad, right? You would, you would investigate, right? So Hal did its great job of just setting it up. And then he hits Jeff Hamer with the flange report. You know, at a certain point, like Jeff Hamer, like takes his glasses off, has like kind of an exacerbated look on his face and is like, yeah, this is very strange. Um, I'm going to go talk to, and then Hal asks him, you know, are you going to, are you going to do anything about it? Are you going to talk to, uh, are you going to talk to the military and tell them about it? And he goes, I'm going to go talk to uh, in-house, uh, the in-house legal department. Like he said that three times. And it's just, it's a really incredible deposition, um, the way how the, the way that Hal set that up. And so how did that, this is, again, it's taken in, a, in an antitrust case for Moldex, uh, what you were alleging was a sham patent case that you uh, presumably had gotten dismissed before this. And, and so what happens then uh, in the antitrust case? And how was that document used? Well, surprisingly, they didn't just give up right away. Um, we actually had to brief a uh, summary judgment on, um, we basically had to, we had brought summary judgment on um, basically showing that 3M uh, asserting a prior patent infringement claim against Moldex was objectively baseless, meaning that no reasonable litigant could have expected to succeed on the claim. And so um, I got to work with Hal in drafting that motion and the court granted it. The court actually held, see, 3M had come in and given basically nine post hoc justifications for why its, its, its patent infringement claim was actually somewhat reasonable. And so in our summary judgment, we had to basically go through each of those justifications and be like, none of, none of these make any sense. And, um, and so the court granted our motion she ruled that it was subject objectively baseless. And so the only fact, the, the main fact issue that was left in the case was whether they acted with subjective baselessness, which is basically with a predatory purpose and anti-competitive purpose. And so Brian can back me up on this. We have a lot, there are a lot of uh, incriminating emails in this case, and it's pretty clear that... Um, they were trying to protect this product. So shortly after that summary judgment ruling, um, the parties reached settlement for that. So at that point, the, any, the antitrust case is over. So uh, why didn't you just declare, was that the end of it? I mean, you, you've won. You've won two cases in a row now. That, but that wasn't the end of it. Right. Well, even before the antitrust case ended, the snowball was already rolling down the hill and gathering steam. So actually we, while that, while the antitrust case was going on, we uh, filed a KETAM lawsuit against 3M. So Moldex hired us to bring this KETAM action on behalf of the U.S. government who had purchased millions of pairs of this earplug for the military. And so 
for those who for those who may not know there's something called the false claims act which is actually a statute that was passed during the american civil war that says anyone who discovers as the original source of information that the government has been defrauded in a procurement or in a contract with the government can sue bring an action a key tam action on behalf of the government against the party that that's that's what a key tam action is and you brought one of those Right, that's correct. So Moldex was the whistleblower in that action. And so what happened was we brought that, you have to file it under seal. So it wasn't public knowledge when this was brought. Um, and that was in 2016, I believe, early 2016. And that went on for a while. Um, I worked on that action with uh, Hal Barza and Joe Panovich. We were basically... We had a lot of calls. A lot of it was having calls and meetings with the DOJ and the and Department of the Army, um, where we we're discussing, you know, the ear bug and what's going on um, in this case. And yeah. ultimately, what happened in the uh, KETAM action? That was settled. Um, it settled in 2018. It was a $9.1 million settlement, of which um, Moldex got, I believe, around $2 million. And there was a public uh, press release that happened when that settlement was reached. And that kind of that that kind of was a big uh, public announcement that, you know, something was going on with this earplug. And that's when some of these cases uh, started getting signed up in a, that ultimately got put into this MDL. So the uh, I assume it's the Department of Justice that did the, the press release saying that we've resolved this uh, False Claims Act, the penalty has been has been paid, and that's an announcement to the world that there's this defective product that's been sold and used by soldiers. And that type of information, there are lawyers in this country, Brian, who know what know what to do with information like that. Well, yeah, John, there there are. And and really this key tam, thanks to you guys and, and Moldex for bringing it really brought to light something that would have never come to light. And that's really why KETAMs are so important to this country because it rewards the whistleblower, it protects the whistleblower when the whistle is blown about conduct that is defrauding the federal government. What, uh, the, and then there was an investigator on that. Her name was Jennifer Coleman. She did a great job investigating it. And ultimately uh, 3M was forced to settle that lawsuit but in the press release that was subsequently also announced in the Stars and Stripes magazine, we saw uh, the plaintiff's uh, mass tort bar saw that, okay, it's great that the federal government was reimbursed, but what about all the soldiers who were exposed to excess noise because of this clearly defective earplug? And as we started investigating how widely it was used, the time period that it was used, we realized that there were potentially hundreds of thousands of soldiers that uh, should not be walking around with hearing loss that, that do. And as we started um, digging into the claim, there was a FOIA request for all of the documents related to that QTAM lawsuit. We received some information and ultimately, as we were talking to these soldiers who were told repeatedly that look, you don't have to lose your hearing to serve this country. You're going to get good 
ear pro, you, along with, of course, your uh, body armor, your eye pro, your helmet, everything else, our, our government does a good job of equipping our soldiers with the best of the best. And they attempted to do that here, but unfortunately, because they were defrauded, uh, our, our brightest and bravest were harmed unnecessarily because of 3M's conduct. So we began gathering cases, other law firms began gathering cases, began filing those cases. And ultimately, all of those cases were consolidated before one federal court in Pensacola, Florida, through a process known um, as an MDL or a, the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation consolidated all of the lawsuits here in Pensacola. And um, I was appointed to be one of the leaders in that. And uh, of course, Quinn was also appointed uh, to be on that committee and, and to assist given the hard work that they had put in. Many, many other law firms uh, were also appointed and we banded together to fight 3M now through uh, starting Monday will be our 16th jury trial on behalf of soldiers for uh, 3M's fraudulent conduct. So Brian, tell us how this works. Um, I mean, we know that there are lawyers out there, fortunately, who specialize in uh, pursuing compensation for claims like this, but they're all over the country. These cases have to be brought in the jurisdictions where the, where the victim is. Uh, and where 3M, 3M can be found anywhere, I guess. Uh, they're big enough that juris personal jurisdiction over 3M isn't a problem, but basically they have to be brought by local lawyers all over. And I assume that uh, there must have been thousands of these cases brought pretty quickly. And it's important to have coordination uh, of these cases on the plaintiff side. How does that happen? How does that come together? Is it just ad hoc? Do people have relationships and history together? Tell us a little bit how that happens on the plaintiff's mass toward bar side. Well, it's, it's a little bit of, of all of the above. We certainly do have relationships with many different uh, counsel uh, that were appointed by the federal district judge, Judge uh, Casey Rogers, to help lead the plaintiff's efforts in this litigation. But um, certainly we, we had not had a pre-existing relationship with Quinn Emanuel but as it uh, turns out, what happens is once leadership is appointed um, to prosecute the claims on behalf of the plaintiffs in an MDL, the plaintiffs band together because it's really out of necessity. The, uh, the large corporations that defend these mass tort litigations have many, many, many um, lawyers and, and they hire the best of the best and they have un, virtually unlimited resources. So the only way that the plaintiff's firms, which are generally less well-funded and certainly we work on a contingency fee basis most of the time and we have to front costs, we have to front time, pay the overhead without knowing whether we're going to uh, achieve success on behalf of our plaintiffs up front. It's a very costly endeavor. Millions of dollars are spent just to work up these cases. And the, the only way we can effectively compete with the 3Ms of the world and the lawyers that they hire is by banding together. So that's what we've done. And we've done it very successfully in the 3M litigation. Our team that uh, we put together is uh, second to none in any mass tort that I've never ever been in. I'm very proud of the work that we've done. 
I think the way that there is this multi this panel on multi district litigation and and my understanding is that the judges on that panel they become alerted to the fact that there is a there's a mass tort or there are these claims that could be antitrust claims that there's many of them over the country and they'll send out a notice about the prospect of consolidating them in one district isn't that basically how it works. Yes, when when um, the federal courts are faced with many different claims in different jurisdictions that have basically the same facts, the same core facts, uh, there is a process by which either the defendant or the plaintiffs can petition this judicial panel to consolidate them all for pretrial purposes before one court. That's important for efficiency, both for the federal judiciary as well as for the parties. And it also uh, helps avoid inconsistent rulings amongst the federal district judges. And we petitioned that this case be uh, sent to Judge Rogers in Pensacola, Florida. She had just had a very successful MDL that had resolved in very short amount of time, thanks to her hard work and the work of the parties in that case. So she had the time and the availability to take on the, the particular mass toward this 3M litigation. Other plaintiff's lawyers as well as 3M had moved for it to go to an other federal district courts. 3M had asked for it to go to Minneapolis, Minnesota where they're based and, and frankly have a great deal of influence. And uh, a lot of folks um, up there are very familiar with 3M. Uh, ultimately, the judicial panel decided that, it, that the best place for it to go was to Pensacola, Florida. We have a lot of retired military in our community, and uh, the courts here have less burden on them than some other federal district courts around the country. So that was the decision of the judicial panel, and that happened um, just a few short years ago. And in that time, we have completed all of the general discovery necessary to prosecute the cases and will have completed our 16th bellwether case and final bellwether case inside of about two weeks. From there, Judge Rogers has indicated that waves of cases will be worked up and then remanded to other federal district courts around the country for ultimate trial. And that's where we are right now. So when, when the cases are all centralized in Pensacola, it's, it's at that point that the court appoints a, a leadership committee and a leader of that committee. That's when you got appointed? That's correct. I had served before her as well in the prior MDL that she had as liaison counsel. There was an application process where people could uh, supply an application, request what position the court should consider them for. She actually interviewed us all in open court and made the decision uh, for uh, not only the plaintiff's leads and co-leads, but executive committee, plaintiff's steering committee, discovery committee, expert committee. She anticipated rightly so that this would be a very large MDL and would need the, the assistance of a large group of talented lawyers that she appointed to uh, assist in the prosecution of the case on behalf of all the plaintiffs. If the court didn't do that, it would just be chaos because every plaintiff hires many, many different attorneys and there needs to be some coordination uh, amongst those attorneys and some structure so that the, the work can get done and uh, the interests of all of the 
collective plaintiffs can be fairly represented. So you mentioned bellwethers. Could you explain what the bellwethers are and what those are all about? Sure. Bellwethers are test cases that are uh, chosen by the court. Sometimes the parties have some input in that, that process as well, but they're supposed to be representative of the overall litigation. And the purpose of them is to test legal theories, to get the input from jurors as to the strengths and weaknesses of each of the party's claims and defenses, and hopefully assist in the ultimate resolution of those claims, um, either in the form of dismissals or settlement. In this case, the judge created four different bellwether trial groups. We're now at the end of group D. So far in these bellwether trials, the plaintiffs have succeeded in jury verdicts uh, totaling in excess of $220 million on behalf of the 12 plaintiffs that we've achieved victory for. 3M has had uh, less success. They've achieved victory and achieved defense verdicts on behalf of six uh, of our soldiers. We're very grateful to those individuals for having stepped up and fought the fight against 3M and um, we're disappointed, of course, that the jury did not find in their favor, but we're willing and able to prosecute these cases all across the country, and we look forward to doing so. I mean, I had the pleasure of co-trying uh, one of these cases, the Vaughn case, uh, two weeks ago in Gainesville, Florida, uh, where we recovered a ver we received a verdict of $2.2 million, which will seem like a lot of money to most people may seem like not a lot of money uh, to other people. But when you think in terms of what, 300,000 claims out there, if uh, you, you don't have to get very large verdicts to do the math to see that the exposure for 3M here, I was gonna use the word enterprise threatening. If you added, added up the average verdict and even included the, the verdicts in favor of 3M, it would be in the trillion plus dollar range. So it is uh, certainly a significant issue for 3M. We hope that they will do the right thing, step up to the plate, create some type of a compensation program for the soldiers who now have hearing loss, permanent hearing loss, or this really severe problem called tinnitus, constant ringing in the ears, and do the right thing. Um, but at this point, we're not there. So right. we'll be continuing to try these cases. So I, I've heard it said that this is uh, far and away the largest mass tort uh, series of cases in the US right now. There are more cases in this particular MDL than any MDL in history, including the asbestos MDL, which was the previous record holder. Really, that is a, a sad statistic because what that means is we have hundreds of thousands of soldiers who did not need to have hearing loss did not need to have tinnitus that ultimately did because 3M did not tell the truth to the United States military or our soldiers when it came to its earplugs. So it's a sad statistic. It's disappointing that, uh, that it happened and we are here to hold 3M accountable for it. Well, now the, the uh, bellwethers are about, about concluded. What, what's the next stage in the handling of all these hundreds of thousands of claims? So the next stage is the wave process. Uh, given the number of claims, this court cannot 
try all of them here in Pensacola or in Gainesville where you achieved your great victory on behalf of Mr. Vaughn or in Tallahassee where other trials have happened. Those are all in the Northern District of Florida. What the court is, is doing now is putting another 500 cases per wave through the discovery process so that those cases can be remanded to other federal judges across this country so that those, those cases can be heard and jurors can also decide whether 3M should be held accountable for its conduct. So all those other cases beyond the bellwethers will go back to the original districts where the cases were filed around the country? Is that how it works? Well, the cases were filed mostly in the Northern District of Florida, but that may not have been the proper venue given where the plaintiffs were actually located. So um, that is a process that will take place over the coming months to determine where those cases should be sent to. Ultimately, what is the most appropriate venue uh, given the circumstances of the individual plaintiff? Right. Well, let, let me step back and ask you, Brian, just more generally about mass tort practice. How would you say that differs than other areas of litigation work? Well, the thing about mass tort practice is you become very specialized in the area that you're litigating, both in the law, the documents, and the medicine. Typically, mass torts involve some kind of a personal injury to a certain part of the body, so you really have to know uh, the medicine in order to litigate effectively the mass tort. You also need to be equipped to handle a mass of cases. The, um, the key word there is mass. There needs to be a, a certain number of cases to be able to justify the fact that you're giving up your practice <laughs> for sometimes years when it comes to litigating these cases at, at great risk, but also in a very rewarding way because you can really help thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people uh, by your work. So everything that you do not only helps the individual that you're doing it for, it will help the entire mass of cases that are uh, in the same position as that individual. I was very impressed with the uh, quality of the testifying expert witnesses in the Vaughn trial that I was just involved in. Uh, I mean, we're talking about very top people at, in hearing at, at Columbia University and other you know, prestigious universities, just the outstanding experts in the, in the country, which who had been located and were prepared to testify, as well as the outstanding trial presentation materials, the videos uh, to help explain hearing, how the ear works, how the inner ear works. I mean, it was really apparent all the the attention and time and investment that have been made to prepare these cases for trial. I assume that's typical in the mass tort practice area. It's typical, I would say, uh, in this case, we were able to achieve maybe a level of success in that than I hadn't seen in some other ones. We, we were able to uh, retain and uh, work up and present some of the top experts literally in the world. We had the former head of the Air Force Research Lab uh, Rich McKinley, who's just a brilliant man and was able to come testify. Doctors from Columbia University, um, the head of the, the former head of the congressionally mandated hearing center for excellence, uh, we were able to retain. And in all of those examples, one of the things that, that is interesting is none of those individuals had ever testified before in litigation. These aren't hired guns. And frankly, we're reluctant to even pick up the phone and talk to us because, you know, we're lawyers 
And that's, you usually don't want to pick up the phone from a lawyer. However, once they saw the documents, once they saw the Flange report that Matt Hosen found all those years ago and saw the internal documents where they're talking about the fact that their earplug doesn't protect soldiers internally while externally telling the government that it's going to protect you, it really um, compelled them to act. And I think they felt a sense of obligation to come in and, and assist the soldiers uh, in the litigation. And we're very proud of the work that we've done. I'm, I'm proud of those experts. Well, Brian, you, you've worked in the Mass Torts Bar uh, for a number of years. You've settled a lot of big cases. I don't know how much you can say about this, but obviously 3M doesn't have a trillion dollars. Uh, this case is not going to settle for a trillion dollars. I mean, how does how does a case like this get resolved? I mean, it seems to me that's I mean, the point of the bellwethers, as I understand it, is you try some cases, you get some feedback for some jurors to help the parties get some sense of what these cases might be worth. The answer that's come come back is the 3M has huge exposure, enterprise threatening exposure. How does how does one settle a mass tort like this? Well, ultimately, it comes down to compromise and and uh, being able to have somebody that's willing to compromise on both sides. In the case of the 3M earplug litigation, there are hundreds of thousands of our soldiers who have been hurt, and it's going to take a great deal of money to compensate them properly. We recognize that uh, time is not on our side and that ultimately 3M can drag this out for a very long time. If the cases are tried individually, and we've tried some in a consolidated fashion and hope to try more that way, but if they're tried individually, there simply isn't enough courtroom time or space or judges to bring each one of these cases to a, a conclusion before a jury. So it's our hope that 3M will step up to the plate, do the right thing, come up with some kind of a compensation program that will be a compromise, of course, but fairly and adequately compensate our soldiers for what they gave up uh, for not only this country, but unfortunately by their use of these defective earplugs. Well, Brian, thank you very much. Thank you and your team for all the great work that you're doing. And I guess, Matt, there's a, a lesson here for all those young lawyers out there who are reviewing documents and maybe thinking, I'm wasting my life and I'm not doing anything that's ever going no, ever going to see the light of day. You know otherwise. You found that document, what, how many years? Well, this was, what, 2013? 14, yeah, 2014. 2014, and uh, look, uh, you know, here all these, these years later and 300,000 claims, all following from uh, a document that you found uh, in a litigation having nothing to do with mass torts. You know, I just, I just think it's funny that... Uh, Back in 2014, um, I would meet up with classmates and we'd all be talking about, you know, what we were working on. We're all at different firms. And I remember at a certain point, I started talking about earplugs a lot and like NRR testing and the flat. And I was like, well, and then people were like, yeah, 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 earplugs, who cares? And now it's like, now everyone's talking about earplugs. <laughs> right. Obviously, you were doing great work as an associate, and you've been doing great work ever since. We're very proud uh, that Matt is uh, now a senior associate at our firm. Uh, so thank you very much for everything. Thanks for participating in this podcast, Matt and Brian. It's been great to have you. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. 
You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.